Good morning, my name is Jeff. It's my privilege to look with you now at uh, the passage that Casey just read for us, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 3 to 16. Can I encourage you to have a Bible open in front of you? It's a little bit tricky when you first read it, but I think as we understand the background, we'll see there's some really important stuff here in, uh, in this passage. So do please have a Bible open and let's ask God to help us. Let's pray. A gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we do pray that you will fill us with your Holy Spirit, your breath of life, that you will uh, renew us, change us, help us to understand your word and help us to respond rightly to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I was uh, with a friend of mine the other day and we were in a group of people and in, in front of this group of people, I made a joke about my friend, I kind of I teased him in front of the other people. Now, it was, it was pretty mild, really, just your typical kind of Aussie knocking of your mate. But when I met with him the next time, he said, uh, Jeff, can, can I raise something with you? I said, of course you can. He said, when you put me down in front of those people the other day, I didn't like it. He said... I've got enough enemies to tease me. I don't need to have my friends tease me as well. Now, I have to admit, my initial reaction was to feel defensive. I wanted to justify myself. I wanted to counterattack. I felt like saying, stop being such a sook. You know, get over it. Take a can of harden up. Come on. You know, that, that, that's, that's how I felt. But is that the right response? Is that the right response? How should I respond when someone raises an issue, rebukes me like that? How do you respond? How do you respond when you get rebuked? It's not the greatest feeling, is it, when someone raises something that they say you've done wrong? So how do you react? Now, as we come into 2 Corinthians chapter 7, it's going to help us to remember what's been happening between Paul and the Corinthians. Uh, I think the background will really help us to understand this passage. If, if we were just reading this letter through in one go, we'd, we'd pick this up. But because we've been doing it over months and months now, it's easier for us to forget what happened uh, a few weeks ago. So uh, we're going to go back to chapter 1. And back in chapter 1, we'll see that Paul had planned to visit Corinth twice. So he'd already been there before one time when he originally planted the church, and then he was going to visit them and then visit them again. So a second and a third visit. You can see it's going to come up on the screen now. He says, I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and then have you send me on my way to Judea. So he wanted to visit twice, would have been his second and third visits to Corinth. But on the first of these two visits, on his way... Things went, well, things went pear-shaped in Corinth. Things went awry. It turned out to be a very, very painful visit. So in the church, there was a man who was involved in some public scandalous sin, bringing the church into disrepute. And Paul called on the church, you've got to discipline this bloke. But the church refused to do it. I suspect he was probably rich, powerful, influential, maybe even the employer of some of the people in the church. And so the church backed this bloke and not Paul, sided with the man and not Paul. And then the man started saying, actually, that guy, Paul, you can't trust him. This whole message that he goes on with about how Jesus died for you and now you have to live for him. Now you have to turn away from sin. <clears throat> Load of rubbish. He hasn't understood God's grace properly. So, 
as we read earlier, Paul didn't return to Corinth in person. Instead, he wrote them a letter. It's a letter that we probably don't have, but it was a, <clears throat> was a, was a letter of rebuke. He, he called on them to discipline the man, and he called on them to renew their loyalty to him and to the original message about Jesus. Chapter 2 and verse 1, it's going to come back again. It says, so, after the terrible events of the first visit, I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. For if I grieve you, who's left to make me glad but you whom I've grieved? I wrote as I did, so he wrote this tough letter to them instead, I wrote as I did so that when I came, eventually, I would not be distressed by those who should have made me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you that you would all share my joy, for I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. <coughs> Excuse me. Paul wrote this letter and he gave the letter to his friend Titus. Titus was kind of the, the mailman for this letter. And he said, uh, Titus, things didn't go well back in Corinth last time I was there. Um, they, they, they didn't side with me. They sided with that man who was doing the terrible things. And here's a letter. It's a really tough letter. Take it to the Corinthians and I'm sure it'll be fine. No problems at all. And then I want you to come back to Troas and report on how things went. But when Paul got to Troas, Titus wasn't there. And Paul was a bit stressed. What had happened in Corinth? How was his letter received? Had the Corinthians given up on Paul? Had they given up on the original message about Jesus? This is chapter 2 and verse 12. It's going to come up. Now, when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. So he went on to Macedonia without visiting the Corinthians, stressing about what's happened with Titus. Have they you know, stoned the guy to death or something like that because of my harsh letter towards them? Now, in the next few chapters... Uh, of Corinthians that we've been doing over these last couple of months, Paul has been explaining to the Corinthians why it is that he's so bold with them, why he's so frank, why he's not scared to say, you guys need to change your behaviour. You need to live in line with the Lord Jesus Christ. He's talked about why he's so bold to share the gospel and why he's so bold to call on people like the Corinthians to repentance, to turn from sin, live for Jesus. And then last week, in the kind of climax of it in chapter 6, he called on the Corinthians to open their hearts to him, to, to, to receive his rebuke, to receive his call to repentance, not just in terms of that man, but in general. He wants them to change, to turn away from idols, to, do you remember the image of, of being yoked, to not be yoked with the unbelieving world. He wants them to align themselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and with Paul's message about Jesus. And then as, as we keep travelling through the letter, we're going to see he wants them to welcome them when he comes again for his next visit, to, to welcome him. Paul has been pretty frank with these Corinthians. He's been quite, quite critical of them in his, in, his, in his visit to them and then in this stern letter that he wrote to them. And, and even in this letter, he's, he's not been shy about rebuking the Corinthians. And now as we come into chapter 7, Paul says again, I'm not speaking like this with you because I hate you. 
I'm speaking like this with you because I love you. I'm frank because I love you. And, and as he writes, he says that he's, he's actually feeling quite encouraged. He's feeling confident that they will respond rightly. Jump back to, uh, jump back to, verse, jump back to chapter 7 and verse 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 2. This is from last week. He says, make room for us in your hearts. We've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We've exploited no one. I do not say this. That's all the harsh things, all the tough things he said to them. I do not say this to condemn you. I've said before, you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. I have spoken to you with great frankness. I take great pride in you. I'm, I'm greatly encouraged. In all, my, in all our troubles, my joy knows no bounds. Paul says he's encouraged. He's, he's confident the Corinthians will receive him, even though he's been so tough with them. And now we see why he is confident. Why is Paul so confident? It's because Titus has arrived. Titus has come from Corinth. Titus has come to Macedonia and he's brought good news. The Corinthians... They did respond well to Paul's letter of rebuke. They repented of the sin they were guilty of. They disciplined the man. In fact, Paul already mentioned this back in chapter 2, didn't he? That they disciplined the man. Uh, and, and they've indicated their love and concern for Paul and their acceptance of the original message about Jesus. Paul, Paul says, I had been so stressed about this. As I came into Macedonia, as I couldn't find Titus, he said, I was... I was so worried. He said, everyone would hate, everyone was persecuting me on the outside, but more than that, I was terrified inside, worried that you Corinthians had chucked it in as Christians. But, but now Titus has come, I'm feeling so much better. Verse 5. For when we came into Macedonia, we, we had no rest. But we were harassed at every turn. Conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. Titus has come, he's brought Paul the good news, everything's okay, and so now Paul says, Okay, I'm, I'm glad I wrote that letter of rebuke. Um, I, I don't regret writing it. I'm sad that it hurt your feelings to start with, but I'm so pleased that it had the desired effect. It gave you a sorrow that led you to repentance, a sorrow that caused you to turn away from your sin and obey God and trust Jesus. Verse 8. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter... I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I'm happy. Not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. And now, very importantly, Paul describes two kinds of sorrow. Two kinds of sorrow. There's a, there's a godly sorrow, that the sorrow that God intends. It's a godly sorrow. It, you feel sad about what you did. You recognise it was wrong. And you stop doing it. You turn away from it. You, you repent. You, you turn from your sin. 
You turn to Jesus to find forgiveness, and that leads to salvation. Because Jesus died and rose again, you can be saved from your sin. The sorrow causes you to turn from your sin to Jesus, you find salvation, and that's going to leave no regret. No regret for the rebuker, Paul, who writes a tough letter and rebukes you, and no, no regret for the rebuke, if I can make up a word, for the Corinthians. Uh, verse 10, his godly sorrow. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. There's godly sorrow. But there is another kind of sorrow. Now, Paul calls it a worldly sorrow. And he says it leads to death. What's he talking about? Well, you feel sorry for your sin. Or maybe you feel sorry for being found out. Or feel sorry that you look like a fool or something like that. You feel sad about it all. But for some reason it doesn't produce any change. You don't stop with the sin and turn to Jesus and receive forgiveness and find strength to, 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 to change, maybe you despair, you give up. Or maybe you just don't get around to doing anything about it. Or maybe you harden your heart. Whatever the reason, your sorrow doesn't lead to repentance. It leads to death. Verse 10 again, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Two kinds of sorrow. But Paul is, is, is thrilled to be able to say that the Corinthians responded to his letter of rebuke with godly sorrow. A sorrow that led them to, to, to fix up the issue that Paul had raised and to reaffirm their, their, their trust in the Lord Jesus and their affection for Paul. Verse 11, verse 11 see what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you've proved yourselves to be innocent in this, in this matter. Paul's letter produced repentance in the Corinthians, and that really encourages him, because what he was on about wasn't, wasn't even so much the issue of that man and his sin so much. What he was really concerned about was that the Corinthians would give up on Jesus would stop with believing Paul's original and true message about Jesus. He wanted them to, to, to realise that, in fact, they loved Paul and the original Jesus. That's why he wrote, verse 12, So even though I wrote to you, it was neither on account of the one who did the wrong nor on account of the injured party, but rather that before God, you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. By all this, we're encouraged. Paul's encouraged by the godly sorrow of the Corinthians, encouraged that they're sticking with him and with Jesus. And he, he's also very relieved about the way they received and welcomed Titus and obeyed the message he brought. Again, you can picture the scene. He'd handed that letter to Titus and said, Titus, last time I was in Corinth, everything went terribly. They basically threw me out on my ear. And so I've written them a really harsh letter to criticise them. Take it to the Corinthians. Enjoy. They'll be fine. It'll all go really, really well. Don't worry about it at all. He told Titus they'd come around and they haven't disappointed him. He's very pleased about it. Still in verse 13. 
In addition to our own encouragement, we were especially delighted to see how happy Titus was because his spirit had been refreshed by all of you. I had boasted to him about you and you've not embarrassed me. But just as everything we said to you was true, so our boasting about you to Titus has proved to be true as well. And his affection for you is all the greater when he remembers that you are all obedient, receiving him with fear and trembling. I'm glad I can have complete confidence in you. All right, can you see what's here in 2 Corinthians chapter 7? It's a little tricky when you first read it, but I think with the background in mind, it, it sort of falls out quite neatly, doesn't it? What's happened? Titus has come to Paul now in Macedonia. He's told him the Corinthians were okay. They responded well to your letter of rebuke. They responded with a godly sorrow, they, a sorrow that led them to repentance. The Corinthians responded well to Paul's letter, to his rebuke. They still love Paul. They still believe the original message about Jesus. And so Paul is, he's, well, he's thrilled. He's, he's really joyful at this point. Okay. Let's think about applying this passage to ourselves. Uh, friends, the message of the gospel is a call to repentance. Now, that was Jesus' message from the very beginning. You can see it in Mark chapter 1, the very first words that Jesus says. Uh, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. So he's proclaiming good news. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. It's great news, but what do you have to do? Repent and believe the good news. I mean, we often talk about how Jesus died on the cross and rose again to forgive us our sins. We often talk about being saved from sin and, and being in the new heaven and earth. We often talk about Jesus as saviour, but Jesus is not just a saviour. Jesus is king. And so if the kingdom of God has come and you want to be part of that kingdom, it means you have to repent. It means you have to say, I'm not actually the king of my own life. I was wrong to ever think that I was. And I need to change everything. Stop being king of my own life. Submit to Jesus as king. The call to become a Christian is a call to a change of allegiance. Jesus is not just saviour, he is Lord. And so the very nature of the message of Christianity it's going to mean that you and I get rebuked. You and I get corrected. You and I get called on to change, change everything. Now, Philip, uh, Pastor Philip Jensen puts this really well. He says, let me quote from him. He says, the gospel is a call to repentance. And repentance by definition means change. To enter into membership of the church is to undergo that most radical and complete change which humans can ever experience. For true repentance comes from rebirth, the regenerating work of God's spirit, whose change is a total transformation. Becoming a Christian means everything has to change. And it doesn't stop when you become a Christian. 
The whole Christian life is a life of repentance. It's a life of constantly saying, oh, sorry, God, I messed up again. Please forgive me. Please help me to, to live with Jesus as my king. And so you can expect, if you're a Christian, basically to be rebuked for the rest of your life. Looking forward to it? You can expect to be rebuked and corrected for the rest of your life. As Philip Jensen says, repentance is but the beginning of the change expected in the life of Christians. Ours must be the long, transforming process of growing like Christ. The Christian who has arrived is already dead and in glory. Want to stop being rebuked and corrected? Be dead. That is the only, only solution. All other Christians are still in the process of change. The gospel is an ongoing call to repentance. That means we need to expect to be rebuked and corrected week after week by whoever's preaching, week after week by your Bible study leader, week after week by each other. We need to be spurring each other on to love and good deeds, rebuking and correcting each other. So how do you respond? How do you respond when you're challenged or rebuked? It's not easy, is it? Not easy to be rebuked, not easy to be told that you're wrong. And I, I have to say that uh, I do see evidence of three unhelpful responses sometimes among some people. Three unhelpful responses to rebuke. Uh, there are some people who respond to rebuke with stubborn unrepentance. Like my initial reaction when my mate rebuked me. I felt defensive. I felt like counter-attacking. Stop being such a sook. I, I, I didn't want to hear what he had to say. I, I didn't want to change. Probably shouldn't tell you the story, but I will anyway. Um, Bible study this week, at the beginning of Bible study, there was a question about, has somebody rebuked you recently? How did, how did you respond? Right as we were talking about that in our Bible study, my wife, Carmelina, came into the room and said, who drank my Coke? <laughs> and I thought, my house, my fridge, my Coke? You know? <laughs> um, Anyway, in what has come to be known as the Coca-Cola incident in our, in our Bible study, uh, I proved my stubborn unrepentance uh, as a natural reaction to rebuke. It's a natural reaction, but friends, uh, people who consistently respond to rebuke like that find that they don't seem to last long in our church. In my time here, thousands of people... I'm not exaggerating. Thousands of people have left our church. And with some of them, it's been because of stubborn hard-heartedness. They haven't liked being corrected and rebuked. On numerous occasions, I've been told that I'm a negative, pessimistic whinger who's constantly on about people's sin and never, never stops going on about it. They haven't liked it, and so they've left our church. No doubt gone to a church where the pastor's a nice guy and it's going to be nice to them, or something like that. Uh, that's one unhelpful response to rebuke, stubborn unrepentance. Uh, at the risk of being thoroughly offensive, here's another un un unhelpful response. And this is especially uh, common in some, certainly not all, but some Asian cultures. Uh, you, get 
you, you get rebuked. Let, 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 let's picture the situation. So say, say it's me, okay? I rebuke you. Brother, sister, blah, 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 okay? And you say, yes, yes, pastor, you're absolutely right. But then you do nothing about it. And to be brutally honest, you never had any intention of doing anything about it. You just said yes, because that's the culturally expected thing to do. That's what you do when the pastor rebukes you. Uh, what's going on is this. Your yes really means no. You know you need to change, or maybe you don't think you need to change. Maybe you think it's a complete idiot. He just needs to keep his mouth closed. But either way, you have no intention of changing, but you don't want to argue with me about it. So you say yes, but you mean no. I know it's common in some cultures, and I know it's supposed to save face. I know it's supposed to save my face and save your face. But at the risk of being culturally insensitive, I think it's dishonest. I think it's a dangerous reaction, friends. I think it's an example of worldly sorrow. I would rather that you just said, I disagree, or you're wrong, or you're being completely unrealistic, or I know I need to change, but I don't want to change. At least that way we'd know where we really stand. Stubborn unrepentance, saying yes when you mean no. Those are two unhelpful responses. Here's a third unhelpful response. Some people in our church have an overly sensitive conscience. Okay, I'm preaching to hundreds of people. I'm not necessarily talking specifically to you every single week. All right? There are some people who think everything I say, everything I criticise, I'm talking directly to them. Maybe I am, but not necessarily. Okay? And they feel constantly guilty. And why is he always on about sin? And they feel constantly burdened by the challenges that they see week to week in God's word. They forget this is the sin Jesus saves us from. Uh, for some people, they end up at the point of despair. Why bother? I'm only going to get rebuked again next week anyway. Why bother changing? <laughs> again, it's, it's a worldly sorrow. You see three unhealthy ways to react to rebuke. Stubborn unrepentance, saying yes but meaning no, or despair. All unhealthy, worldly, worldly sorrow. So how should we react? What is a healthy way to react to rebuke or correction? Well, friends, first things first, we, we need to humble ourselves. We need to humble ourselves. When my mate rebuked me... What was it that made me feel so defensive? What was it that made me arc up and just want to attack him? I mean, I'd clearly done something that had hurt his feelings. Why did I have that initial reaction? Well, it's because deep down I still think I'm a good person. Deep down I'm still proud. Deep down I still want to justify myself. And so that attack, it really hits me. I, I, I'm not looking to Jesus for my justification. I'm still looking to, to me. 
If I were looking to Jesus, I'd go, whoopee. <laughs> my justification isn't being attacked. My justification is in Jesus, not in myself. And so if I were rebuked and I honestly trusted in Jesus, it wouldn't, wouldn't really kind of force me to be so defensive. Do you know what I mean? I wouldn't feel this deep need to justify myself because my justification is in Jesus, not me. Friends, if we're genuine Christians, we need to be able to listen to rebuke with humility, confident that our righteousness is in Jesus, not ourselves. That's the first thing, humility. But second, we should listen with discernment. Not every rebuke we hear is correct. Not every rebuke applies to us. Not every rebuke is fair. Sometimes it says a lot more about the rebuker than about you. So what do we need to do? We need to weigh up what we hear. It might be that we need to graciously disagree with our rebuker. Sorry, I think you're wrong. We need to listen with discernment. Humility, discernment. But then third, if, if the cap fits, we need to wear it. If the rebuke is fair, we need to develop what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians here. We need to develop a godly sorrow. The sort of sorrow that leads us to turn away from our sin, find forgiveness from the person and from the Lord Jesus Christ, find salvation in Jesus, and then ask God by his spirit to help us to change, to do better. As I thought about that rebuke from my friend, I've realised that uh, it, it was fair. It was fair. And, and, and the more I've thought about it, the more I've realised it's actually much deeper than much deeper than perhaps he thought and much deeper than I originally thought. Uh, sure, I hurt his feelings. That's bad. Sure, I put him down in front of other people and he felt bad. That, that, that's, that's not good. That's not good. But, but what was really going on? Why... What was going on in me that I felt the need to put my friend down in front of those other people? It was because I'm so desperately concerned that these other people think how good I am. I'm a people pleaser, wanting to look good in front of these, in front of these other people. And there's this twisted thing inside me that somehow makes me feel better by putting him down. I somehow feel, I don't know how, but I somehow feel that I'm going to look better in front of these people by making him look bad. It's quite twisted, really, isn't it? I pushed myself up by putting him down. I didn't just hurt my mate's feelings. I was being a people pleaser. I was being selfish. I was being rude and insensitive. I was being disloyal being foolish, and he was right to call me to account. The cat fits. It was a fair rebuke, and my response should be godly sorrow. I should be saying sorry to him. And I should be saying sorry to Jesus and asking him for forgiveness and asking Jesus for forgiveness, and, and I should be changing my behaviour. That's not always going to be easy, is it? No doubt I will keep sinning and no doubt I'll get in front of people who I want to impress again and the temptation will be there to put somebody down and my desire to please people runs very deep and I'll probably mess up again and again. I'll need to keep repenting, I'll need to keep praying for help. 
But that's the right response, isn't it? Godly sorrow that leads to repentance and is not going to leave any regret. So friends, here's the healthy way to deal with rebuke. Three points, do you remember them? Humble yourself, be humble, be discerning, listen carefully, and then, where appropriate, respond with godly sorrow. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you love us. Thank you so much that no matter who we are or what we've done, you love us. Thank you that no matter how often we mess up, you love us. Thank you that Jesus has done all it takes to save us from whatever sin we have done. Thank you that through him we can be justified. So, Father, please help us to find our justification in the Lord Jesus and then help us with humility and discernment to be people who are quick to show godly sorrow. Strengthen us to do this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.